Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Good morning, y'all. How are you? Good? Good? It feels like, um, man, it's been at least a year since I've seen you guys. Uh, I know. My daughter is over here rolling her eyes currently. Um, wow. Uh, can we get the house lights up just a little bit um, so I can see your stunningly charming faces? Um, mostly, I just want to know if you've nodded off. Um <clears throat> How many of you have had uh, one of those weeks uh, in recent times where, like, you get to the end of it and you think to yourself, I think I'm glad I'm here, but I'm not certain. Um, That could have gone either way. Um, We're in this series. This is actually part two in the series, and we're also in 21 days of prayer and fasting. In fact, um, I was texting. (laughs) Come on now. Um, Uh... I was uh, texting with a pastor friend of mine um, here a couple days ago, and he just said, hey, I see you guys are doing 21 days of prayer also, but you added fasting. You guys are super spiritual. (laughs) I was like, I'm not saying that's not true, but um, uh, the reality is, and we've been talking about this, when it comes to fasting, um, fasting is only significant in its relationship to prayer. Fasting is a little bit of a fad right now, in fact. Uh, intermittent fasting is a weight loss plan. Um, uh, I, I'm not going to lie, there have been a few years when we've done 21 days of prayer and fasting, and I thought, hey, now's the time to get in shape. Um, and I have to remind myself, nope, that's not what fasting biblically is about, right? Uh, there are all kinds of benefits to fasting physically, generally speaking. But when we're talking about um, biblical fasting, uh, prayer is the link between fasting and hearing from God. And, um, and so we're digging into prayer uh, over these uh, next three weeks, counting today. Um, and I would um, just say uh, this, there's a direct link between food and faith. Uh, and if you're um, watching this online or you're watching this via video in um, second and third service, All this will make sense in just a little bit, but I just want to say um, to all of you, thank you for praying for me um, over the past week. Um, If you know, you know, and if you don't, you'll know at the end of my message. So stay awake. Um, It has been an eventful week uh, in our lives, for sure. Jesus um, is... uh, coming into his ministry. In fact, he's just been baptized uh, by his cousin, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. Um, And 
John, as he sees Jesus coming down to the water to step into the waters of baptism, is an act of obedience, not because Jesus needed to be forgiven of some sins, but he's actually living in obedience, even to the Jewish law. And he comes down to be baptized. And when John sees him, John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which is a massive phrase all by itself. If you want to unpack that, you could spend a long time unpacking what is the Lamb of God? What does this mean in this moment? But John fully recognizes that that is the Lamb of God. And Jesus is coming down. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Jewish people. That's not what he says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a massive recognition in this moment of who Jesus is. Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, and the different narratives tell us different elements of what happens in that moment. But one of the things that happens in that moment is that the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and then you hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, on my ordination Sunday, when they put me in this role here at Church on the Rock, David Pepper gave me a chainsaw, and he preached a great message about future leadership and transition and change. But no dove Holy Spirit came down, and there was no voice. Like, that would be a great way to kick off your ministry. I'm not going to lie. Like, that's right. Here we go. And as soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, here's what we're told in the Scriptures in Matthew. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4 Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Hey, welcome to ministry. Let's head into the wilderness and experience some temptation from the devil himself. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and, of course, became very hungry. 40 days, 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. I've often thought it'd be like, um, tell these stones to become filet mignon. Might have been a little more tempting, but I'm guessing at 40 days, any food is tempting. What Jesus knows is it's within his power to turn the stones into bread. It's also within his power to leave the wilderness and go find food. But the temptation is to use your spiritual authority for personal gratification. And so here's how Jesus responds in this moment. But Jesus told him, no. I love that they put an exclamation mark in the NLT there. Turn these stones into bread. No! (laughs) All right. Hangry. No. The scriptures say... People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is an extraordinary statement. What Jesus is actually acknowledging in the very beginning of his earthly ministry is he is acknowledging that there is something else that actually sustains you, that if you really want to live, it isn't what you stuff in your mouth It's by adhering to what comes from God's mouth. And he says that's actually where you find life. He's looking, to be clear, he's looking beyond the here and now into an eternal promise that's been made. I want to 
make this observation. There is an undeniable connection in the scriptures between the physical world and spiritual realities. Yet we spend the vast majority of our time wrapped up in the physical. It seems so much more tangible to you and I. It seems so much more prominent, imminent, that if something happened to my life here and now, that would be a tragedy. And yet over and over in the scriptures, what you hear declared is that our lives are a blink and a breath. We were made for more. And Jesus is identifying that in this moment, that my hunger isn't the biggest deal. There's actually another hunger that should be in us, that actually rules the way that we live our lives. I'll give you one more example. This one's always been rather extraordinary to me. It's in John chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. It's a popular story, a common story. It's um, known as the woman at the well. Uh, There are all kinds of details in this story that are really extraordinary when you begin to unpack it and you understand who this woman was. But Jesus knows everything about this woman. But here's how the story begins. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling, apparently for quite a while. And Jesus, now listen to what it says, Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. I don't know about you, but I never really think about Jesus with these words attached. Jesus is tired. No, he's not. He's God. He can walk on water. Surely he can walk a few miles supernaturally. But you need to understand something. Jesus is fully human. In other words, he experiences all of the same limitations. He experiences all the same desires. He experiences all the same temptations. In fact, in Hebrews, it makes this point several times that Jesus was tempted in all things, just like you and I. And I've told you this before, but it's a mysterious principle. Um, In order to be tempted by something, it has to be tempting to you. Just chew on it for a little bit. Uh, uh, Like, Jesus actually experiences temptation. That does not disqualify him. What actually qualifies him is that he never gave in to those temptations. That's what makes him extraordinarily the sinless Son of God. But in this moment, he's experiencing human limitations. Jesus is tired. I know you thought he was Superman. Get over it. He's tired and he's weary from their travels. And so he's going to send the disciples into town, a Samaritan town. We don't have time to unpack all of this story. But into a Samaritan town to get some Chick-fil-A and bring it back (laughs) with extra sauce. All right? So... Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And this begins an extraordinary conversation between this woman who has had five husbands, and the man she's living with now won't even marry her. She's damaged goods, and she's coming out to the well in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, because that's when none of the other women are there, and she doesn't want to be around them. They all talk about her. And here she is, and and here's this guy, a Jewish guy, who's willing to talk to her, a Samaritan woman, and they engage in a conversation, and Jesus begins to tell her whole life story to her, and she's like, you've got to be a prophet. He's like, duh. 
And then the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Wouldn't it be so nice to have him here finally? And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. This is the first person Jesus reveals this to, is a Samaritan woman who's had five husbands, isn't even married to the man that she's living with now, and is just out there to get some water and a little peace and quiet. And Jesus lets her know, he is the Messiah. Just then, his disciples came back with Chick-fil-A. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. We know you're hungry. That's why we went into town to get food and you stayed here because you were tired and hungry. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. And then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Jesus is identifying that there is something that sustains him that is better than, more satisfying than, food. That's what he's identifying here. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning of his ministry in the temptation in the wilderness. What he's actually declaring is, now I'm telling you, I have experienced it firsthand. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God that I am living in obedience to my Father, and there is something sustaining, life-giving, invigorating about that. And he will also eat again later. Right? The observation is this. The connection between the physical and the spiritual isn't actually just about food. We're in 21 days of prayer and fasting, but this same connection is made not just with food and faith, but it's made with work and faith, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but work with his own hands. He who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Like all of these passages of Scripture are actually very spiritual things. But we make this distinction. We bifurcate between our physical lives and our spiritual lives. And yet in the Scriptures, there's a distinct connection between all of it. You could say almost everything is spiritual. Between work and faith, money and faith, relationships and faith, there is a direct link between our physical lives and our spiritual lives. And prayer is the relational connection between faith and the physical. That's why we're dealing with the issue of prayer. And prayer, I don't know what environment you grew up in. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you did grow up in the church. Maybe you grew up in all kinds of different kinds of churches. Uh, But prayer can often feel like a very mystical thing, and yet it's intended to be an experiential thing. And so what we're talking about over these weeks is the parts of prayer. But prayer is um, the the experiential life in Christ is nurtured through fellowship with Christ in prayer. Sometimes uh, the Christian life can sort of feel like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, buckle up buttercup, read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. And so we just muscle through it. And there are times where you just don't feel it, but you were designed to experience life 
in Christ, not just wish that you could experience life in Christ. And prayer is that connection. And part of what we want to do is demystify prayer a little bit for you. And we're giving you some elements of prayer that we think are actually critical. You'll find them in the scriptures. And these are the four elements of prayer we're dealing with. Last week, we talked about confession. And then we're going to talk about praise today. We talk about petition next week. And then we talk about gratitude the final week. But in really simple terms, confession is this, acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Now, I, I know often we love to pretend that we've done nothing wrong uh, but, but here's what's actually essential in confession is conviction. For me just to say, I know you think it was wrong and I'm sorry. That's not an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It actually has to come from the inside. It's a recognition. I can remember the moment. Like I had prayed the sinner's prayer, I don't know how many times. The denomination that I grew up in, um, uh, every Sunday I needed to get saved uh, because there were numerous things that I had done that were clearly wrong in the week. Um, and so every Sunday that rolled around, I was like, oh, I better get saved again. Um, that's probably what needs to happen right now. But it was really um, sort of a ritual or a religious act. Uh, but the reality is that the, I can remember the moment where I actually was convicted. Like, here's how I would describe it. My heart was broken over the way I had treated the grace and the love and the mercy of God. There was no way around it. I knew at the deepest levels how offensive my life had been. And at that exact same moment, I experienced this rush of God's compassion, grace, mercy, and love that I did not deserve. But confession is really about acknowledging, taking ownership. Today we're looking at praise, and praise is really um, acknowledging and rejoicing in who God is which is different than gratitude. We'll look at petition next week, making my request known to God. And gratitude is actually expressing thankfulness for what God has done. Often we confuse the two. Sometimes in the scriptures, those two are confused. But we're making a distinction right now because we want you to understand that praise is actually something you can do even if you can't identify something you can be thankful for right now. Praise is actually um, acknowledging and rejoicing in who God is all by himself. And gratitude is expressing thankfulness for what God has done in my life. And really, the, uh, the, the, in practical terms, if you want to take these four things and use them as a template for prayer, it's wonderful. But if you have no experience in prayer, you don't even know how to start in prayer, you could just take these four things and you could just start with confession, knowing that your sins have actually already been covered by the cross and you're asking Jesus to apply that to your life right now in this season for what's happened recently. But confession, then you could move into praise, just acknowledging who God is and expressing that. You could move into petition. God, here's what I need in my life. Here's what I need you to do on my behalf. And you can move to gratitude and thank him for the things that he has done in your life before. In the scriptures, you'll find them mixed all over the place. It isn't a formula. It's simply a template to help you engage in prayer. Here's what I would say. There are few things that move us to pray faster than fear. That diagnosis, that wayward child that you don't know where they are right now, that moment you get the phone call that your wife and three daughters were in a head-on collision on Connect. Right, those moments, 
Nothing moves us to prayer faster than fear. And praise is our most powerful weapon against fear. Praise is our most powerful weapon against fear. Which brings me to spiritual warfare, and it's the power of praise. In Second Chronicles, um, there are lots of extraordinary stories, but there's one story that's always captured my attention because the details are so alarming if I try and put myself in the context of the story as particular characters. But Israel and Judah are now two separate nations. Judah is quasi-pursuing the Lord. Israel is all off the tracks. I mean, Ahab has been king. Ahab and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, have paired up. They've teamed up to fight the enemies that are against them both. The Lord rebukes Jehoshaphat for this. Ahab dies in battle. And now Jehoshaphat is going about the business of trying to bring the country back into alignment with the things that God has called them to and asked of them. And the Lord's going to honor this, but he's going to do it in a really unusual way because all of the surrounding nations, now that Ahab is dead, have decided they're going to come and they're going to attack Israel and Judah. And Jehoshaphat is terrified. So this is the context of the story. Their army's not big enough. They don't have enough time to prepare. They don't have the alliance anymore that they once had. And so here's what happened. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. They are already at Hazazon Tamar. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news and begged the Lord for guidance. Few things move us to prayer faster than fear. The enemy is coming, O Lord. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. Sometimes I think it'd be great to be able to be a king and just order everyone to fast. Like, here's what we're doing. Okay. He orders everyone to fast, but everyone's in on it. They all see the problem. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives, and children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite who was a descendant of Asaph. Now you're probably wondering, why did I put all those dumb names in there? Often when you look at genealogies or they give you the list of where this person came from, there's actually a reason these names are listed for you and I. Because Asaph is one of the musicians, one of the singers, one of the writers of the Psalms under David. He's a worshiper. That's who he is. And, and they want you to know that in the story. This isn't just your average Joe. This is a guy who has a heritage of worship and praise. So he said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. But we have a reason to be afraid. I know, don't. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged by this. I love that he identifies it. Mighty army. You're right. They could kick your butt. Do not be afraid of this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, 
Yes, it is. I got to make the appointments at the doctor. I got to go get the chemo treatments. I got to go. I'm the one who has to do all of these. No, 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 no. You don't understand. The battle actually isn't yours. If you believe it is, this could go poorly. The battle isn't yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. And he goes on. But you won't even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. Don't you love when the Lord doesn't give you a battle plan? Now I'm telling you, just get up in the morning, go out against them. I know their army is much bigger. I know you're terrified. It's justifiable. It seems scary. But what I want you to know is you're not even actually going to have to fight. But get ready to fight. And then in the morning, I want you to get up and I want you to go out against them. So that's exactly what they do. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. What he's saying is have faith. The closer we get, the scarier it's going to be. But have faith. Believe. After consulting the people, the king, here's where it gets crazy, appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord our God is good. His love endures forever. So I want you to, I love this part because I'm probably going to be one of the guys with a sword and a shield and Jonas has to be out in front, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like the battle's coming. They've lined up outside. The feds are here and, and they're about to come in, kick the, and I'm like, hey, worship team, go stand by the front doors. <laughs> Give us a minute, right? Like, Think of it, it's just, it doesn't make any sense, right, in, in the context of what's happened. But they've already been guaranteed that it's not actually you who's going to win the battle. It's actually the Lord who's going to win the battle. And now they're out on the battlefield. They're about to face their enemy. And finally, some sort of plan emerges, and it's a stupid one. I think about it. Right? What are you going to do, whack them with your trumpet? Go ahead, John Baker. Use that electric guitar. You just shred them with it. I, like... Praise doesn't produce victory. My effort does, doesn't it? And he's saying, no, that isn't true. In fact, I want to ask a few questions here. Um, when did they praise God? Well, they praised God before the victory. Because praise is different than gratitude. They praised God when they hadn't experienced victory yet, and they were not certain about what came next, they just knew that the plan wasn't a great one by human terms. Put the worshipers out in front. But they praise God before they see victory. They make a decision. They make a conscious choice. And then the second question is this. What did they praise God for? And it says it in the text. They praise God for who he was. Like they praised him for the splendor 
of his holiness, the splendor of his glory, which exists and is true of God, even if they all die in battle right now. It exists and is true of God, even if they hadn't experienced everything that they thought they were going to experience or wanted to experience in this life. They actually praise God before the victory, and they praise God for who God is, not for what he has done. They're just acknowledging it's true. You're glorious. You're magnificent. Even if I only had history to look at and other people's history to look at, I could come to that same conclusion that you are magnificent. You are glorious. They praise him before, and they praise him for who he is. And then the question is, why did they praise God? Well, they praised him because he's worthy. Because he deserved it. I actually don't know what's going to unfold in these next few moments, but what I do know is that you have always been good, you are currently good, and you will be good in the future. And so I praise. At that very moment, which moment? Moment that the worshipers are praising. At that very moment, they began to sing and give praise. The Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. This is my observation. God is moved from the moment you open your mouth in praise. You may not see it for a minute. You may not understand it, maybe not even to eternity. But what you can be confident of and is revealed over and over in the scriptures is that from the moment you open your mouth to praise, the heart of God is moved. In fact, in Daniel chapter 10, a story is told about Daniel entering into 21 days of prayer and fasting. And during those 21 days, he's praying and fasting for the nation of Israel. He's repenting for the nation of Israel. And during that 21 days, he hears no answer until day 21, and an angelic visitation happens. This angelic being shows up on the scene. And this is what happens in that moment. On April 23rd, as I was standing by the bank of the great Tigris River, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. And then he said, don't be afraid. It's a familiar phrase you'll find over and over in the scriptures. Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. And then the angel goes on to reveal some extraordinary things about spiritual warfare. He says, I was engaged in a battle in the heavenlies, and while you were praying, we were fighting to come to you. That there is a partnership between us and the spiritual realities. What if Daniel had been like, all right, that's it. It's been 14 days. I'm all done with this. I'm hangry, and I don't want to pray anymore. What if he had stopped at day 20? He had ceased praying at day 20. But on this day, on the, Daniel was persistent in prayer. But what you need to know is that from the moment he started praying, the heart of God was moved to action. And that's true for you also. You may not be able to perceive it 
presently, but your persistence in prayer matters. It's why my mama prayed for me for so long. Right? Maybe your mama prayed for you for so long. Is that they believed that persistence in prayer actually produced fruit in the future. Don't give up. When the scriptures say pray without ceasing, they're not saying be super spiritual. Oh, sorry, I'm praying right now. I can't talk to you. Like I'm always praying. No, they're actually saying don't give up on prayer. Continue to ask, continue to knock, continue to seek. But persistence in prayer matters. And from the moment you open your mouth in praise, God is on the way. You have to know that. Persistence in prayer is more powerful than you can imagine. So when they get up to the battlefront, they don't even see what's going on. As they get all the way up to the battlefront, here's what it says. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. They're just singing their hearts out, hoping this is going to work. They get up to the battlefront, and they had no idea what was going on on the battlefront. But on the battlefront, a slaughter was taking place, and the enemy was killing itself. And all they see is the victory. You know this is true whether you see it now or whether you see it in eternity. Every one of us would love to see it right now, in this moment, right here, but it's actually true either way. You will crest the lookout point at some point in your life, and you will see things for what they actually are. Victorious in Christ. Which brings me to over my dead body. The power to praise. And the question is this, how do I praise when the problems are all I see? Because sometimes all you can see are the problems. This uh, year has been somewhat of a challenging year for me. Uh, Everybody keeps telling me, yep, it's because you're getting old. Can't do what you used to. Everything's falling apart. And I would just say this. Like, I've intentionally put myself in environments. Um, I turned 51 in February. February 23rd, if you want to go ahead and write it down in your calendars. Um, uh, I turned 51 in February. Um, and I've intentionally put myself in environments, whether it's in CrossFit or competing or playing soccer with a bunch of punk kids like Michael Sliwa. Like, um, I used to be able to do all kinds of extraordinary things. I can tell you, I could have whooped Michael any day of the week, and certainly Paul with both legs tied behind my back. Uh, but, but all that aside, now I'm playing with these guys, and I'm like, yeah, my body just does, doesn't do that anymore. Like, I told it to, um, and instead it hurt itself. Um, uh, so I recognize, uh, like, I'm not all that depressed. You just get old, right? Like, so whatever. But what I'm dealing with isn't actually about that. In fact, um, uh, I had gone on this hunting trip uh, to New Zealand, returned from that trip, um, and on returning from that trip, my calf was really, really hurting. Um, And so I had gone to the uh, doctor because my wife and my mom both told me that I was dying if my calf was hurting, um, uh, and they'd both looked on WebMD, and so it was certainly true. Um, So anyways, uh, so I finally relinquished. I went in. um, I just figured I had pulled something, but no, no, I had a blood clot 
um, in my leg, which I thought only people that were 180 got blood clots. But apparently if you sit on an airplane for 16 hours and you don't get up because you fell asleep, you could get a blood clot um, in your leg, and I did. Um, and so, uh, of course, everyone is convinced that this is the end of the world. Uh, but they put me on blood thinners. I take the blood thinners for a while. And then I go back um, about a month and a half later. They do ultrasounds, vascular ultrasounds up both legs. Blood clot's gone. I'm like, sweet, glad to be done with that season of my life. Um, and I move on. And uh, on Christmas Day, <clears throat> I started to feel um, not so great. Uh, and, and in particular, if I laid down flat, I didn't feel so great. But whatever, I, it, I wasn't concerned. Uh, some of you may know I was diagnosed a couple of years ago with an aneurysm in my uh, heart, my ascending aorta. Um, and, uh, and they don't know if I was born that way. It's just dial evenly dilated. It's not a bulge. But they didn't know if I was born that way or if I had done damage somewhere along the road. But they washed it for a year, and they came back and said, it's not getting any bigger. Go live your life. And I'm like, great. I was anyways. Um, uh, but I started to feel not so great. It was in my chest a little bit. And, but we had stuff to do. We celebrated Christmas Day. We had some stuff to do. Um, on that next day, uh, Garland and I left for a preaching series retreat. We went up to a cabin up north. Um, and did a bunch of planning that night. We should do a bunch of planning the next day. And, um, and, uh, and in the middle of the night, um, we're, we're staying in two separate cabins. And in the middle of the night, I just woke up in excruciating pain in the right side of my chest and in my right shoulder. Uh, so, of course, I went straight to WebMD, um, diagnosed myself. I had um, a gallstone. I don't even know what your gallbladder is or what it does, <laughs> nor what a gallstone is, but it seemed to fit all the symptoms. And I'm like, sweet, nailed it. Um, I should probably go find out what I'm supposed to do about it because I can't lay down now. Like, it's excruciating uh, pain. But sitting up, it was bearable. And so I sat up till Garland got up in the morning, and he came over and I said, dude, I think I need to go to the hospital. Uh, and so we drove back uh, to Wasilla. Uh, my wife drove me into A&MC, ER. I went in. Um, the best thing to say when you go into the ER, even if it's your leg that's hurting, is my chest hurts. They'll get you right in. Um, uh, and uh, so anyway, so um, they, they take me back, do a whole bunch of tests, CT scans and ultrasounds and blood work and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, I can tell you what it is because I researched it myself and I almost got a medical degree last night. Um, so... Uh, but the ER doc comes in after quite some time, um, and she says, well, I wish I had better news, uh, but you have um, multiple blood clots in both lungs, which apparently isn't great. I knew it didn't feel great, uh, but this, this is what she tells me. And, and on the way home, you kind of have that moment like, because the other one, like the one in the leg, they call it provoked. I, I knew why that one ended up there, right? Like, I should have gotten up on the airplane or worn compression socks like a grandmother or something. Like, uh, and so, um, but this one, there's no explanation. I've been, I'm, the previous six weeks, been in the gym three to five days a week. I mean, been getting after it again, like trying to take care of myself. So, so the question is, where did these come from? This is a new condition, blah, blah, blah. And I actually still don't know the answers to all of those things. All I know is I ended up in the ER again a couple of days later um, in excruciating pain, um, and now I'm just kind of walking this out. But here's what I've, I've found, because um, there's all kinds of questions, right? No matter what the diagnosis is. Um, if one of these breaks loose, do I have a stroke, 
right? If one of the, right, all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, my mom is in the medical field. Um, so she's let me know everything that could possibly happen um, and, and terrified everyone. No, she just loves me um, and she's concerned. Um, but, but I got lots of stuff that like I need to get done. But, but my primary thought is, what does this change? And I'll tell you the one thing over the past few weeks, um, I've just been uh, playing worship music in, in my car. And there's something about praise. Like, I've just had some super cool, intimate moments with Jesus over the past uh, several days um, that are unique. And, and they're unique because I'm actually crying out in prayer more right now. Um, I, I'm actually um, praising from a place of uncertainty. But there's actually something really significant about that. There's something that happens in me, and I also believe there's something that happens through us when we allow God to lead us into those battles, singing praise on the front. I know whether it's here or whether it's in eternity, I will crest that ridge and see all my enemies slaughtered. Right? Like, He is currently doing that, has done that, and will continue to do that. And he just invites me to praise him in faith, but recognition of that reality in my life right now. Whenever I think about these kinds of things, I'm prone to move towards some sort of pity party, which is always my real caution for saying this kind of stuff out loud (laughs) in this kind of environment. what I often think of, of this guy, Job. Job 1, verse 20. You just have to start with the word Job, and all kinds of things come to mind for you and I. Like, that cat got a raw deal. Like, and what's extraordinary is on the front end, you get all of this stuff that happens to Job. He's just hammered on every front. And I often think to myself, yeah, I ain't there. Like, I could think of a lot of things I'm grateful for, and, but if I was Job, I could not think of maybe any. And after all of this happens, here's what it says Job does. Job stood up. So after hearing all of his kids are dead, he tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground to curse God. Uh, fell on the ground to what? Worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave here. The Lord gave me what I had. I was grateful for it, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise, praise the name of the Lord. Praise him for who he is, regardless of what my circumstances are. I know I will exit this life, and I will exit it in the same way that I came into it, taking none of it with me. And he's got me. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. This is the principle. Praise is not dependent on your present circumstances, but it is dependent on your perspective. When you and I can lift our eyes up from the 
chaos and from the mess and we could see an eternal perspective, we could start by just recognizing who God has always been and praising him for it. Praising him that he's already won the victory, that he's already fought my battles, that he's already invited me into eternity. It shifts the whole game for you and I. It shifts it for our families. We can communicate with them. Listen, I don't know what the future looks like. I don't know what's going to happen. What I do know is that you and I get to spend eternity together because of who God is. So I can praise him. I experience something unique and powerful when I do on the front end. Praise is important. This brings me to the last thing. Make it known. People kept asking me, um, uh, can I share with people what's going on? And I kept saying, no, you can't. And it isn't because I'm a particularly private person, as you've probably discovered over the years if you've heard me teach. I have no problem just saying, this is my life. This is what's going on in, in my life. But as I thought about why I was saying no, it was really all about this. It was, I'd let a handful of people know what was going on, but I actually didn't know what was going on. And, and, and often, for me, fear tends to take first place in our lives. And so nine times out of ten in my experience over the years, when someone has a lump, it isn't cancer. And so I didn't want to get people all wrapped around the axle or praying for me before I actually knew what was going on in my life. But it isn't because I don't covet prayer. It isn't because I don't value prayer or value people praying for me. I just wanted to know what we were praying for before I asked anybody to pray for me. I felt like that was important for them. It was important for me. And, and I knew that day would come. Well, um, one of my family members uh, who was in a private chat uh, with our family and my wife was asking them to pray, um, sent it out on his rather extensive and international mailing list, which some of you <laughs> saw. Uh, <laughs> I thought, well, there it is. Um, might as well say it on Sunday now. And, um, and, and yet the reality is it actually is really important that we invite each other into this. I need other people to join me in this battle. You need other people to join you in that battle. It's why James chapter 5 says this, Are any of you suffering hardship? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Find some prayer warriors in your life and invite them in. The reason I had... Um, uh, make it known is we've got a prayer wall right out here as you came in you saw it with all the little tags hanging on it and the brown tags and i hung one up there today uh, the brown tags are things you're praying and fasting about things you're asking the lord for you can write those down and what we're gonna do is we're leaving it up there all the way to the end of the 21 days of prayer and fasting and the white tags are when god answers that prayer we're asking you to come back and fill out one of the white tags and hang it up right there with it because what we believe is from the moment you open your mouth in praise and in prayer, the heart of God is moved and we expect that he will actually produce results in your life 
that are perceivable, experiential, and tangible. So that's what we're inviting you to do over these next few weeks as we pray together about the future of our church, where God's taking us in the days ahead, that you would also be asking for prayer, putting those things up there for yourselves. We're going to be praying for those each week in our staff meetings here at Church on the Rock, and then you can be praying for those throughout the course of the week, and we're going to be rejoicing as we see the answers to those prayers emerge. Amen? All right, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to invite our prayer ministry teams to come. They'll be available here on both sides. If you have any prayer requests today, uh, they would love to join with you in prayer. But let me close this out. Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for the reminder that you are faithful, that you are the same God yesterday, today, forever. God, I would ask even in this moment and the things that I've shared in my personal life, that you would use them to direct our hearts towards you not towards me. You know that our desire is that our eyes would be fixed on you, that you would shift our perspective, and that as we praise even before we see victory, even when we praise in the middle of the problems, that you would show up and you would show off internally and externally in our lives. We ask all this in the matchless and mighty name of Jesus, the Son of the living God. Amen and amen. We love you, church. You are dismissed. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.